the Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman and friends. Welcome to the show. This is the Boys of Tech episode number 303 for the week commencing Monday the 10th of November 2014. My name is Edwin Herman. I am joined over a Skype connection by Ben Sunko. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks, Ed. Hey, Ben. Well, you know, it's another week. Uh, Another week's just gone and a whole bunch of uh, tech stories up for discussion and in fact, you've brought this one to my attention, Passpoint, Wiffy Passpoint. What is that about? So it's um, it's a what's the best way to describe it? It's a um, a security. Is that really? Uh, maybe it's a security layer that sits on top of Wi-Fi that allows you to authenticate um, without necessarily using like you know identifying SSID and then applying a, a pre-shared key of some kind. It'll allow you to you know say you're Say you're walking around the streets of Wellington and you, you want to jump on Wi-Fi and you find a Wi-Fi access point, generally what you have to do is go to a website and then log in and then put in some money to say that you want to be, then be using the internet and then you'll use the internet for a little while and then you get kicked off and it's a really horrible experience. With this, it's a way of like if you've gone through that process, you're now authenticated with that network and as soon as you go into the area that that network exists, you're immediately part of it and using that Wi-Fi. So right now, your, your key Wi-Fi places are your home and your work. Those are the places you trust and those are the places you connect to and um, that's where you generally use your Wi-Fi. And between those two places, you'll be switching to 3G or 4G. This is supposed to fill that gap, is to provide a secure Wi-Fi network when you're in between your secure Wi-Fi networks. So obviously you're using other networks along the way, but they have to be, I guess they must be part of this thing, right? They must be a participating network. Like, for example, my my home one wouldn't be part of that, would it? No, you, you could probably deploy Passpoint onto it if it if it was capable like if you're capable on your phone and you're capable on your Wi-Fi router um, and it would potentially simplify the connection to that network um, so if, you know you wouldn't have to worry about changing pre-shared keys or wireless keys because you'd be authenticating with like a, a certificate or you know something something else other than that um, so you, you might want to do that at home but it's not for that that this is for like say Say you're you've got your phone service through Spark and Spark offer you know one gigabyte per day at um, at each phone booth through a Wi-Fi. Then you're already paying for your connection. You're getting this free Wi-Fi, but you're not going to bother connecting to the network because it's problematic. But if you're automatically connected to it, then you'd start using it. So in the states, Time Warner is a big rollout of this. They've been deploying it. Um, there's this. I think maybe uh, British Telecom in London. I think they've been deploying it. Okay, you but see, how, how, so so what do you see? Well, you see telcos. You see telcos that are already offering this service, um, trying to expand into it, and. Ask your question because I think it's the same thing that I asked. Well, it was going to be, what do they get out of it, and how does how does it get paid for? 
Yeah, so that was the same thing. I was like, why Why would a company want to lead people onto a free service when they could charge them for a paid service? Exactly. Um, but cell phone towers are expensive, and there's only so much bandwidth available in that cell phone space. And it's more expensive for a telco to be off. Like, sure, they're charging for it, but it's also a lot more expensive for them to provide it and to service it and manage it when it's being provided over cell towers. Yeah, but surely, you- surely they're making a huge profit from the data charges. Surely, surely that's lucrative for them. Surely they don't want people going off onto wireless when they can be using the, the cell signal because it makes yes, money. But if, if- but if you've got a plan that gives you, you know, say, 10 gigs a month or whatever, you're probably not going to use a lot of that. But if you start watching big videos, that's congesting the network. That's putting a lot of load on the, the wireless network, which on the, sorry, on the cellular network, which is affecting, you know, text message delivery, um, anything that's working into that, into that sort of the network space. If you can push them over into Wi-Fi, which is very, very cheap. I mean, a Wi-Fi, a Wi-Fi router that would cover, you know, a reasonable area, you're looking at a hundred, 200, maybe $500. How much would it cost to put in a cell tower or increase the signal of a cell tower. Yes, so I, to I, understand, to- I understand that concept, but I'm still not convinced that they're not going to be losing money. I, I think the telcos are going to be losing money from this. Uh, am, am I wrong? It's, I, mean- I think it's... I think it's more about capacity planning. Like if you've already got an oversaturated network and you've got an opportunity to take some of that saturation off that network that doesn't cost you very much money, you're not going to lose customers from providing it. So sure, you might not be creaming that little bit off the top, which is very expensive for the people that are using a lot of data over the cellular network, but that's not necessarily the business you want to be in in the first place because if you oversaturate that, you can't really, you can't meet the demand with with more supply because the supply is going to cost you so much more to deliver. So if you can if you can still be getting you know you've still got your big customer base you've still got all that if you can then push some of that usage into a very cheap network it does make sense. So do, in this in that situation, let's say we have a a data plan with a cellular network. When we're on these hotspots. Does that count towards our data plan, or is that off? So, I mean, I could I could only talk I could only talk about what Spark are currently offering in New Zealand because that's all that I really know about right now. So, right now, if you are a customer and you have a, a mobile connection, they give you they give you a one gigabyte per day allowance from the from um, phone booths essentially. So, each phone booth around Wellington has a Wi-Fi um, point on it. And you can connect to that and use one gigabyte of data. If you don't use it, you don't use it. If you use it, it's part of that. You're not paying for it. It's just something that they're providing. So it's not costing you as a user anything to be you know, consuming that data. And if you don't use it, I mean, you're not being penalized. You're just not using it. Um, so it's, so it's, how, how do these phone uh, booths that are no longer phone booths but wireless phone booths, how, how do they fit into the equation? Like, uh, are, are well, they're they, still phone booths. Uh, they're still phone booths. They're, they they have a hard connection into the network, so why not start providing more services? Yeah, but what? Yeah, but how does that fit into the whole pass point thing? Well, if each one of those phone booths had, and this is what Time Warner have done over over in America, so you look at, I mean, it probably makes more sense in somewhere like America. You know, say say you're a cust- you're a cellular customer of a company that covers this very small area, but you're actually part of the Time Warner unit. As you travel around the country, you'd be automatically authenticating against each one of these. Um, you know, they tend to do it off phone booths as well. You just 
you've got a connection there, so why not provide it? As you're going around the country, you'd be connecting to the network that you currently belong to and who you're already paying for data, and you'll be getting good connection through it. So when you're connected um, to one of these and you're downloading something, that doesn't count it, off it's your, logged, your... It's logged against your account, and it will certainly be monetized at some stage. But in this, like in the particular case of Telegram, of Spark, they're just offering this. Um, so time warning, you probably have to, you know, you buy the connectivity, but it's probably cheaper than mobile data and you'd be getting a much better connection probably. Um, okay, so you still have to pay so at some point. for so Someone's going to be paying for it. I mean, whether it's the telco paying for it because it's cheaper to do it that way than do it other ways or whether it's just purely a paid service. Like what we're going to see eventually with this is that um, – a lot of people will provide this as a service that you can connect to and then they'll charge the company that you actually belong to for the data that you use and you'll be paying your company. Um, in the same way that, you know, if you go overseas and you use your ATM card, you know, it's not your bank that has the presence there, but you are effectively using their network and you'll pay that. So that kind of setup would be quite no, common, I, I think. In mean. the same way that if you use your cell phone overseas, you know, you go, you're on Vodafone in New Zealand, you go to, you know, a country that doesn't have Vodafone, if there is one, and you jump into their network, you're going to get charged by that provider and eventually it's going to be charged back to your, your New Zealand account, but it's all, you know, it's just all done in the background. It's all, you, you get presented with an amount and you pay it. So yes, there will definitely be monetization to this. So uh, we may see, I guess it's up to the telcos, but it's entirely plausible that some telcos may charge for you using that service. But would they even know? Because it's not on their network, is it? It's we, we will we will inevitably get to we will get to that point eventually. I mean, whether the data has to be routed through their network so that they then have a meter. I mean, there will you know the internet will find ways of of monetizing this and working it all out like. Um, but the cellular network of, say, Spark would would have no idea what I'm connected to when I'm not on the cellular network. So, for example, at home, when I'm on my wireless network at home, Spark had yeah. no idea what I'm using through my home network. So how would they even know what I'm using through my through a passpoint network? Well, I mean, if it's, if it's there... If it's the, like, oh, if it's their passport, if you're authentic, like if you're if, if it's their network, then obviously they're they're doing that. But if you're using somebody else's network, you still have to authenticate to use it, and you'll actually be authenticating back to your home, like your home provider, to to do the actual authentication. And within that authentication, you'll be creating, you know, a, an accountability sort of thing, saying, you know, this person has now logged in at this access point using these details, and here's the amount of data that they're using, and and that company will want the money from the provider. So they'll be wanting right, to okay, so them. The provider will want everything to be above board. So they'll be wanting, you know, you know how systems work. They just work. They just work. <laughs> okay, so so if I'm understanding this right, for that to be possible, Spark must be, you know, for, the, for there to be a chargeback, Spark must be a partner of the price point network I'm using. Yes, I'd say so. In but I mean, we're not way, even... So We're not at the point of any of this being feasible. Like right. it's been rolled out in you know very few places that I'm aware of. Um, but the, I mean, you can be a customer in London and be connected to a network that exists along the River Thames, and then you can go over to San Francisco and be connected to that network, and you're authenticated. And so 
they've got some arrangement going there because I'm sure it's not the same company at each place. So okay. yeah, I there see. are commercial mm. arrangements already in place and eventually we'll get to the point where there's probably just, you know, exchanges and it's just a matter of, you know, how data moves around the internet. You know, some people will pay transit, some people won't and it'll just all eventually work out. So this is relatively new, I take it. This is very new, yeah. I'd never heard of this before I started looking into it. Yeah, in fact, I, uh, from what I can tell, reading some articles about it, not many people are, are, are aware of it. No, I think the first I think the first sort of specification of this was maybe was... like released in 2010, 2011. Okay. And I think the first hardware devices were only released in like maybe late 2011, early 2012, and it's still, it's not widely available. Um, Apple have put it into iOS 7, so it's it's definitely on its way out, and it's going to be a big thing. Um, okay, interesting. Yeah, I'm glad you very brought, interesting. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that to my attention, because, uh, I yeah, well, I, I wouldn't have, I'd be none the wiser otherwise. There you go. Yeah, so, we're going we're to see a lot more about it coming up, definitely. Now, by the way, um, this uh, Wi-Fi or Wi-Fi, however you pronounce it, Passpoint is not to be confused with Passport, which is a completely different thing. This is also called Hotspot 2.0. Yeah, Hotspot 2.0, um, yeah. Yeah, and there's various other you know, codes and things to find it. Um, I mean, the other, the other big part of this is, and, and you should probably understand this, is like tablets. A lot of tablets don't have GSM in them, so they're kind of useless when you're not at home or at work. If you could actually connect to a you know a public network on a device that's not capable of using the cellular network, it suddenly makes that device a lot more useful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for years, mobile, like, last few mobile phones I've had have had a Wi-Fi access point option where you just turn the phone into a Wi-Fi access point and you can connect to it with yeah, a now, laptop or something. Well, that's the thing. I mean, Apple have done this, uh, and it, it, but they've kind of simplified it. It just, it, it's there as an option, as a network. You don't need to set anything up. You just choose it from the, from the uh, menu. I wonder if they're actually using Passpoint for that. I would well, would not be at all surprised because Apple are an early adopter of this and they have talked about it being in iOS 7 and being switched on by default. No, um, maybe, I wouldn't maybe, be at all surprised if this is the method they're using. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe underlying, the underlying technology is, in fact, Passpoint or Hotspot 2.0. Maybe you're right. That would explain why they're so keen to adopt it as well. well that's, yeah, Because exactly. it just simplifies something. Yeah. Oh, that's um, I that's a great technology story. I like that. I like these ones because these are ones to watch over time and and uh, you know and and watch the them slowly you know get rolled out and the adoption rates go up and so on. So um, yeah, all right. Thanks for bringing that to my attention, uh, Ben. Have you seen that uh, <laughs> NASA video of the GoPro inside a floating water bubble in weightlessness? Yeah, it's pretty neat. That is kind of cool. The, the video is doing the rounds on the internet. Uh, so these, for those who haven't watched this, it's a it's a, vi- a video released by NASA at the space station. And in this weightless environment, they have uh, <laughs> produced this water bubble that, as you can imagine, without gravity is just one big sort of blob that floats around in, in space. And uh, they put this GoPro inside it and completely encased in this water bubble, and the GoPro, of course, was filming, and the results of the video are on YouTube. It does kind of look like it's just a camera underwater when they show the the footage from the GoPro. Yeah, it does. Uh, it, you're right. It doesn't, except you can look sort of horizontally, like a so you know, Stargate, that sort of vertical yeah. water sort of portal thing. It kind of, because yeah. of course, in, in on Earth, you don't, you know, you're right. It is like underwater, but you can only look up. 
<laughs> but the coolest thing for me was when they actually put the GoPro into the bubble and how the bubble like tried to maintain its surface and extended out to absorb it and didn't didn't want to release the camera outside of the the water tension and that was very cool. Yeah, in fact, I'll tell you what, well, let's put the video up, uh, well, a link to the video up on our show notes. So under boysatech.com, episode 303, you'll see it there. Hey, Ben, by the way, just one small uh, point of pedanticness, pedanticism, whatever the word is. A lot of articles call it a water bubble, but it's not really a bubble, is it? It's a drop, a giant drop, isn't it? A bubble is hollow. Is it? Does a bubble have to be hollow? Well, I don't know. If you see, if and you know, what do you mean by hollow? Because it's not a vacuum. Well, I can, <laughs> yeah, yeah, good call. But you know, filled filled with air or something. Because you know, can you have a bubble in a vacuum? <laughs> the tangent of a tangent of a tangent. <laughs> can but you can a, you have a bubble no, in think, a vacuum? Actually, that's a, we should ask NASA to do that one. Can you? No, no, you can't. Well, actually, I don't know. Can you? But anyway, this is not in a vacuum anyway. But yes, you've certainly taken. This tangent to another the, tangent. The air out of your bubble. Um. <laughs> yeah, first my bubble. I'm getting before I get too confused. I'm going to move on and talk about the hop. Oh, no, I want to. I want to fixate on this. So, yeah. is it a bubble or is it a drop? Well, um, look. Could you say that I, a drop I think it's a, has to have I, gravity. I think it's a, it? no. I don't think so. I think a drop, despite its name uh, sounding like it's going towards gravity, it's dropping. I, to me, drop simply means uh, water with. Uh, with just one globule, if you like, of water, whereas a bubble has typically air inside it. Okay, I'm going to argue that a that a drop of water is a bubble of water that has gravity applied to it, which is then causing it to fall towards a body and create the drop shape in that bubble of water. You've confused me. Is that what you tried to do? No, so I'm saying that a, a drop of water sits within the subset of bubble of water, but what makes it a drop is the fact that it is is being attracted from a gravitational, like being affected yeah, by a gravitational. Blow, okay, so if I blow a bubble, that's not a yeah, that, but that's a bubble. If I blow yeah. a bubble on Earth, right? Yeah, it's being attracted by gravity. It falls down eventually. It, it, it may, it may, but it doesn't. It doesn't fall down at a rate that actually affects the shape of the bubble. The bubbles, like if you if you're blowing a bubble that floats in the air, when it falls to the ground, it's still in a bubble shape, and then it breaks. If you actually drop a, if you drop a bubble of water, that water changes shape as it falls. The classic, the classic drop, like the classic the water drop, the teardrop shape is what you're the talking teardrop. about. Teardrop. Yeah, but yeah. I, I don't think that's. I, I think that the more fundamental difference is that a bubble is hollow. When I say hollow, I mean obviously it's got air in it, but it's not water inside it. It's air, whereas a drop is solid water, not solid as in hard. <laughs> Bad choice of words, but you get what I'm saying, right? It's full of water. A bubble's full of water. Sorry, a, a drop's full of water. A bubble's full of air. That's how I see it. It's interesting. I am, I am genuinely interested by this. Because look, that draw, that, that whatever you want to call it, that globule of water in this NASA video, how different is that to, uh, say, if you're using your watering can in the garden? It's just bigger. It's just one of those drops, but it's just giant. And there's little well, bits of droplets that fall off that uh, you may have noticed in the video that fly off when they're handling this um, this globule of water. I mean, in in one particular dictionary that I've just looked up, the, the drop is the smallest quantity of liquid heavy enough to fall in a spherical mass. Oh. Mm. So that is, the, that would say, well, 
that wouldn't I wouldn't say that's a drop then of water. This would be a bubble of water. So that's a definition of drop. On some to- random website that we can't necessarily <laughs> give any credit to. Okay, but yeah. okay. How about how about I look in the Oxford English Dictionary, arguably the best source and the most accurate source of the English language. I haven't looked yet, but I'm about to look. A drop. Here we go. The smallest quantity. Oh, this sounds very similar to yours. The smallest quantity of liquid that falls or detaches itself or is produced in a spherical or pear-shaped form, a gl- and semicolon, a globule of liquid. Globule, yeah, it would definitely be a globule. Uh, I, I would say, there, therefore, it's a drop. Whereas a bubble... Why it's a tiny the- round ball of air or gas inside a liquid. I'd, I'd say so, according to the according to the uh, Oxford English Dictionary. So this OED, can't be a bubble of water. Ex- yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. I think, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you are right. Yeah, it says it's filled with air or gas. I think you're right. Yeah. So the only thing left to find out is can well, you still, can you produce? No, I don't think it is actually a drop because a drop sounds like it is too small to be what this is. I think what this is is a glob- globule. A well, globule. yeah, but it's a drop as well. Hey, look, here's the only thing. To- I think it's too big to be a drop. Oh, you don't... can't put a GoPro in a drop of water. It's just a, a drop giant of water. Drop. That's no, it drops too. But like you can't no, call like no, a liter just, of water a drop of water. No, because it's not falling. But you see, in space, a liter of water would be one giant drop because it all holds together. The only reason why drops are small on Earth is because of gravity and and air friction break, breaking it up. Uh, uh, now I think you're losing me on this part. Like I think you're definitely <laughs> right that it's not a bubble of water, but I don't know that I agree it's a drop of water. <laughs> well, Ben, you know what else we've lost? I think all our listeners. Uh, if we, <laughs> and I don't think they'll come back unless we get to the next story. So let's move on and talk this is about still the most t- interesting thing we're going to talk about all week. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, I'll say one more thing about this drop bubble thing. How about? Oh, you can't do that. You can't deliberately get the last word in and then say, "Oh, I'm going to get the last word in and force us to move on." <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Let me just because I started saying this earlier and I stopped. Uh, there, there is one final thing left to to figure out, and that is whether it's possible to create a bubble or you know something that looks like a bubble in a vacuum. Like in other words, a spherical film of water with nothing inside. Is that possible in a vacuum? Yeah. And and that's really we. I don't know if we can answer that. Perhaps some of our listeners have some ideas, and they can. Leave some comments we, on our website. Should we start a science podcast? That would be boys cool. Boys of Science. Yeah, the boys. That, well, yeah, why not? Uh, look, now let's move on to David Hasselhoff. We finally got to the Hoff. Uh, he's he's finally tried out a uh, a self drive car. And, and what does that really mean? Like try out when you don't actually have to do anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's been a passenger. That's more accurate, isn't it? He's been a passenger in a self drive car. He was terrified. He said. He said. I've never had more anxiety in my life. Your whole brain says, don't let go of the wheel. But he's been the 80s in a self-drive car. Exactly, and that's the irony of it, isn't it? <laughs> of course, yeah. we know it wasn't a real self-drive car, but well, th- there you go. It, it what was, do you mean? Kit was real. I saw it. I saw it each week. <laughs> yeah, okay, it was real. All right, it was real. It was I mean, real, it was ben. driving and there was no one behind the wheel. It must have been real. <laughs> anyway, so that's the stunt that he did, of course, being a Hoff, you know, being a night rider and all that, decided to, uh, you know, go for a ride in a in a real driverless car and he was terrified. Who would have thought? Apparently the Hoff thought. 
<laughs> and I wonder, one, what, I wonder uh, what he was was he expecting to be scared or did know. he think it would be fine like I look uh, but would you I don't know what my reaction would be I'd like to think that I'd, I'd just get in there and go oh this is cool but in, in real in actual fact I might be petrified I think you would be I mean I think you would naturally be a bit anxious because it's not you know have you ever met anyone that's been in a drive like a self-drive car I, I no, no I haven't maybe uh, a self-parking but that's about it yeah I've actually been in a self-parking car that was cool. It was a Mercedes. Oh, it was brilliant. So when I first parked, were you a little bit anxious? Well, you see, it's self-parking and it's not self-parking. You still have control over accelerate and brake, but it does the yeah. turning and the gears for you. So it, it does the reverse and then the forward, if you like, if you understand what I'm saying, for you and, and the turning. But you control the speed at which it does that yeah. by accelerating and braking and I'm assuming it wasn't your car so who cares if it crashed <laughs> well I still would have cared but it, it wasn't my car but oh it's it's it was weird it was it, it's kind of odd but it's kind of cool like I was telling some people about this the other day in fact how uh how to find a car park along you know a parallel park along the side of the road all you need to be doing is cruising slower than 35 k's an hour and indicating left, I suppose it would be right in, in Europe and America, but indicating left and under 35k and a little P comes up on the dashboard, if it senses a gap in the parked cars or between objects, that's big enough for it to, to slot in. And you'll be surprised, you know, we, we tried to find one of the tightest spots and sure enough it came up with the P and and she said, the owner of the car said, look, I, I, it's, it, according to the car, it can fit in there. And I'm looking at this gap going, there's no way it's going to fit in there. But sure enough, it did a perfect park, exactly equ- you know equidistant between front and, and back. How much? How much room was there? Uh, look, I I'd hate to put a figure to it because you know I, uh, in the car you can't you don't get a good sense of of that. And I didn't really get out to look. But oh, you didn't get out because I was going to say, could you walk between it? Yeah. Oh, you know, you definitely could. Yeah. I mean, it's not. It doesn't do the impossible. I mean, it still it hasn't got the what was that car with the wheel that goes at right angles and it slots in. It wasn't one of those. It's one of those gaps that are the size relative to the car you're driving where you would go, oh, I don't know if I can get this in there. You know, the, the That's extra- very subjective. You don't know how good a parker I am. <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't know how good a parker you are. You, you might say I wouldn't go in that where I'd look at it going, man, that's easy. Or vice versa, <laughs> it might be the other way around. Which uh, yeah, okay. Well, anyway, look, I, I, don't know, I don't know how much gap there was, Ben. I really don't. But it was, it was, it was, I was impressed, put it that way. But not scared. But not scared. No. <laughs> exactly. Off, to get it back to the story. <laughs> yes, I can I see what you did there. Yeah, sorry, sorry to tie it back into the show. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, are we actually doing a show still? I think we are. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> sure. I thought we were looking up science experiments. Oh, and Does, actually... Like, can you have the Hoff in a vacuum? <laughs> <laughs> I want to get off the subject of the half. I want to get. In fact, Brett has requested that we we cover a, another story. So, shall we do that one? It's okay. it's about a piece of malware called Wire Lurker, and it's a piece of malware that uh, affects OS ten and iOS, and it can rip you know uh, spread between the two over USB. It's the first of its kind that. Uh, that's you know that people are sorry. It's the first of its kind that that's known. And why did Brett want to, what did Brett want to bring this up? I don't know. What has he got? What to do you say? mean? It's the first of its kind of, to, of spreading across USB and affecting 
uh, both the you know a, a phone and the computer OS. To- so a USB from the computer to the phone. Oh yeah, from computer to phone. Because I mean, <laughs> we've had you know corrupted USB sticks since. Oh yeah, no, like, no, no, exactly. Like, so what I'm saying is, it's the you know first of its kind of say of a desktop operating system affecting also that affecting that operating system and over a USB cable connected to that computer, a mobile device. In this I guess case, that is OS 10 one, iOS. I guess that is one potential problem with having unified technologies um, like that. Having your same, the same system between the two, you're potentially going to shortcut a lot of safeguards that you would put in place if it wasn't there. Like if you, you know, if you were writing software that interfaced a phone with a computer, you're not going to allow, you know, you're not going to allow the same amount of communication between the two of them if you were controlling both ends. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But you know, by the way, this this uh, piece of malware, I have to point out, is it's bad, but it's not that bad. I mean, you still have to go to a Chinese OS ten app store, a, a an unofficial one. You have to, uh, you know, download a piece of software that is happens to be infected. You have to then click through the security warnings on OS 10 saying, yes, I really want to do this. Yes, it's, no, it's not signed from a from a known developer, but I'm going to continue, yes. So you have to go through all these, you know, hoops. Having said that, oh, actually, I forgot to mention as well, What sorry, what makes this particularly special as well is that it affects non-jailbroken iPhones. Whereas up until now, malware for iPhone has been, uh, primarily, uh, you know, for jailbroken. Once it's jailbroken, I mean, it's game over, really. Well, yeah, I mean, all those steps that you just said sound awfully familiar. Like, it's like, oh, so you mean you've made your phone usable? <laughs> um, like, most, a lot of people that I know, not most people, a lot of people I know would break the phone just to be able to open up a lot of stuff. Yeah, see, I wouldn't do that because you're opening yourself up to a lot more security risk, a lot, a lot more, you know, you may not get certain updates from Apple or certain updates from Apple may brick the phone. I, I wouldn't risk it, personally. It depends. I mean, obviously, it depends on the person and, and what they're trying to achieve and, and various other things. Like, if you're in a high-technology sort of area and you know a lot and you know the risks, then you're probably going to evaluate them and figure out that, no, I'm not going to be going to a lot of places where I would be susceptible to issues, so I'll, I'll take that risk and I'll manage it. Um, some people will have a clue what they're doing and they'll let them wonder why they broke their phone. But mm. No, I take your point. I mean, so, some, some do it knowing the risks, absolutely, and, they, yeah. and they'll be careful. Uh, by the way, uh, Brett, you know, who can't join us on the show this morning, but he, he he's, put a, he's put this uh, story up for us to talk about and he's put a comment here saying, if Wirelurker, which is the malware, if Wirelurker can do what Apple claimed was impossible, then what is the future of malware on iOS and OS 10, dot, dot, dot. I don't know what Brett's getting out there because I don't really know what Apple said was impossible, but uh, I don't think Apple's ever said their, their systems are, you know, free, uh, immune to viruses. They've never said that. It's probably the, the way that you can infect a device, like, like for it to spread between devices. That's probably what he's really saying. Like I, I think, you know what you should, we should do, Ben? We should haul Brett in front of the microphone next week and uh, and get him to <laughs> to tell us what he means. But there you go, Brett. If you're listening back at the podcast, I don't know if we've done this uh, story due diligence, but here it is. We've, we've talked about it in some way, shape or form. Yeah, we think it's <laughs> bad. Yeah. They shouldn't have done that. Yeah, it's bad. Down with this sort of thing. Yeah. Right. (laughs) 
on that note, Ben, I'm going to close the show. That is it. That is episode 303. And Ben, I want to thank you very much for co-hosting. Thanks, Ed. And no thanks to Brett for not co-hosting, but thanks to, <laughs> to everyone for listening. See you next time. Till then, goodbye. Goodbye.